Hello, my name is Steve D'Agostino, and my co-host Anne Fernald and I welcome you to the Twice Over podcast, because to teach is to learn twice over. In Season 2, we're hoping to identify some promising practices. Now that we're on the cusp of post-COVID teaching and learning, it may be time to think about what have we learned? In this episode, 7 times 4 is 28, we are joined by Barbara Mundy, professor of art history at Fordham University, who shares her experiences in collaborative course design. When I arrived at Fordham over 20 years ago, we were teaching an intro survey of art history. It's pyramids to Picasso kind of survey. It was largely the Western tradition because that was what was available that moment. Everyone had a section of 35 or 36 students. And because we brought in a lot of adjuncts to teach it, it became a course where we had very, very loose understandings of what would be done in the course, um, but there was no shared syllabus. The only real expectation was that students would kind of come out with some set of, of art historical tools, like being able to look at a work of art and write a formal analysis. That is really crucial because all of us who teach in that art history survey have a fundamental belief that one needs an encounter with a work of art to actually do art history. You can go to departments where that's not actually the modus operandi. But it is with us. We're very kind of object-centered. And so that was the seed that I think enabled us when we tried to confront the huge challenge of the pandemic, rethinking the curriculum, moving to these hybrid classes, that was one of the seeds or, or one of the connecting tissues that kind of allowed us a, a point of unification. And I think when you're doing something, when you're trying, again, to kind of the rope everybody in, you need to really stress those, those real points of common agreement. Can you say a little bit more about what you mean by an encounter with a work of art? Our mode of studying artworks is to take an individual piece and really unpack it. And you unpack it visually, iconographically, before you move into to context or cultural history, which is kind of the way you encounter a work of art in a museum. I mean, you first have to start by seeing it. Our mode of approaching the, the discipline is very much informed by literally that act of looking. Who did you gather together to talk about creating resources to share and just really give us like the nuts and bolts of how you created this shared, I don't even, is this a shared syllabus, a shared library of materials? I don't even know what it is. Well, Steve can tell you it is a Blackboard site. I mean, it's a collaboratively designed course where, Barbara, how many of your colleagues worked on the course together? Curating content and creating assignments, how many? I got in touch with all the full-time faculty who would be teaching this course in the fall. So for all of us, there was a huge element of self-interest at work. I also was able to tap into the expertise of our two junior faculty who would not be teaching in the fall. And that was made possible by a Dean's Challenge grant. Mm. which gave them a stipend over the summer to contribute to this course. The idea was, and again, I think, I mean, self-interest played a role, certainly, because we all knew that we'd be confronting, like, this universe in the fall of teaching 
hybrid or in person. I'm, who knew what we were going to be encountering? Um, but we decided to design this course as a cooperative effort. And it worked out. There are 28 classes in the semester. Everybody basically got four. So everybody had a little bit of an, a little piece of the pie. Steve was so instrumental in helping us think through this because he brought this expertise in course design. I think it was you who advised us to start with the exam. To go backwards from the outcomes. Yeah, like what do you want the students to know and then go back from there. And I think also um, Asato Akeda had some real experience in designing a fully online course. So that was, you know, we're able to take some of her modules and sort of edit them and revise them for use in this course. So we weren't really starting from a blank canvas to, to use an art metaphor. My colleague Asato Ikeda, who does Asian art, had already designed a course in, with Steve that was Blackboard based and was to be fully asynchronous. When you sat down, Barbara, with your colleagues and said, okay, we're going to use the principles of backwards design, we're going to start from the final exam, and we're going to think about what we want students to have learned. What are our objectives? Where do we want them to be at the end of the class? How did those conversations go? Sometimes those conversations are real turf wars, right? Where someone says, well, you know, clearly the centerpiece of this is, you know, the, the 20 days we're going to be spending on my area of specialization, <laughs> right? Well, how, how, how did you navigate those conversations? I'm blessed because we ha I have a, I'm in a very collegial department. We agree to agree. There weren't any turf wars. And, and by establishing that everybody would just get four classes and the course, as we designed it, we wanted to integrate more. Well, to go back a little bit, when we were, the way that the art history survey had been taught, again, starting 20, 25 years ago, was really as a Western um, survey. And as more um, faculty were hired, myself included, and Asato Ikeda, who's a specialist in Asian art, we decided that we would actually unpack the survey and, and divide it into kind of three sections. So one, I mean, not three sections, but three classes. So one could take the, you know, intro to art history, the Americas, intro to art history, the Asias, or intro to art history, Europe. When we sat down to design this course, it was also an opportunity to make the course as global in its outlook as the faculty was in theirs. And so that was an additional area of buy-in. I think people were excited that we could be offering um, a course that was that was global. I have colleagues who are very have very broad interests. So for us like it's kind of cool to learn about Buddhist art so we could teach it at an introductory level. I and mean, we're not experts in Buddhist art, but we can bring it into our classes. So, And I because you have also, your colleagues' materials, you feel like you've got the support. You're not hanging out on a limb, wondering if you're saying it exactly right, because your colleague who's the specialist has given you some material to build on in addition to what you're able to do as yourself. Like that would give me a ton of confidence as a teacher. Yeah, yeah. Based on the course that Asato had designed with Steve, we went, we, we based um, the idea on a flipped classroom model. So the Blackboard site for every class contains videos. There's always one video that we recorded on the material. It's usually short. It could be like 10 or 15 minutes. We curated other materials. Sometimes we made additional focus videos. 
And that was essentially filed in the, in the class for the day. So we had all the material prepared by the end of the summer to teach the course. And the idea was that when we went into the classroom, we could really spend the time discussing ideas that had come up as the students had prepared for that class. So for me, like this flipped classroom model is like the way I always wanted to teach, but actually never got it together enough to do so. And it's fabulous. I mean, coming into a classroom where the students have actually like they've done all the reading, they've they've watched the videos, and then you could have a real discussion. It's amazing. It's just great. So there's been a big lift for me in in just thinking about my own pedagogy. I can hear in your voice, right? So can you say a little bit more about what's exciting about what it means to come into that classroom with students who've done that work ahead of time? It's exciting because, well, number one, it's not just me that they're getting the information for from, and I love the idea that there are kind of a multiplicity of voices that they're listening to. It's also exciting because when students prepare for the class, they often t- take a little quiz. Sometimes they write responses that, you know, the classic three, two, one, three things that you learn, two things that you surpri- surprised you, and one thing you had a question about. And through those, you can really get a sense of their engagement with the material. And their, sup- their questions are really surprising sometimes. And they wouldn't be able to ask those questions if we didn't have this flipped classroom model where they were actually doing the thinking, the labor of thinking before even getting into the class. So you can use that as the leaping off point for your for your class discussion. It's so interesting to me because that's what it used to be that homework was supposed to be. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> so why do you think this has kind of revived that for our students? Is it the video that's more dynamic? Is it knowing that the class isn't going to be lecture? Well, I think our gradual understanding that students are going to respond if something, especially at an introductory level, they're going to respond to more short, um, varied pieces of information or um, encounters with works of art. Lots of the pedagogy, and Anne, I credit you because you've been what you've been bringing all these pedagogical seminars, and and they've been a wealth of information. But so much of it tells us that, like, no, you can't just lecture anymore. It's, it doesn't work um, for the kind of classes that we're teaching. So, but I think because so many of us were taught in that mode, it's hard to break away from it. And I think we forget that those of us who became professors may not be the best model of the generic student. That's true. <laughs> there's a, there's the, the, the learning style in which we learned is well suited to create exact, to replicate the profession. It may not be well suited for education broadly construed. Right. Exactly. Exactly. What's some advice you would give to other departments about collaboratively designing an intro course? I don't think we would have done this had it not been for COVID and had we not understood that we were going to have to do something quite radically different for the fall so that it wouldn't be a repeat of what we went through in the spring. Um, So there was a natural, there was a kind of goad to us 
coming together and creating this. Without that, it would be hard to envision people putting in the kind of energy that they did over the summer to get this course up and running. One of the things I think that really worked for us was deciding after we decide what the, what the, literally what the exam questions would be and what the kind of themes we'd like to treat that would lead up to students being able to say, answer the exam question, that everybody had a very specific mandate. Everyone had four classes to design. We agreed that there would be only a certain amount of material that the students would be expected to prepare beforehand. Every class had pretty much the same elements. There were some videos, there's some readings, there's either a quiz or a reflection in it. So having a very standardized template, if you like, and then having everybody have, have you know, four little pieces of the pie made it somewhat easier because we could, I won't say postpone, but we could well, maybe postpone is the right word. Maybe we could postpone the discussions, the the discussions about, you know, should should the Western canon get more play? They were in some ways obviated by the very way we were thinking about the course. And I'm not saying that those discussions aren't important, but I would also I could envision them really thinking a project like this before you even got it off the ground. Mm. Right, right. Because you have a certain amount of staff and then you can look at that and say, boy, we really are lacking a specialist in this area. We would love to be able to offer two lectures in this area. So then that becomes a conversation about strategies around hiring decisions, right? Mm -hmm. But, but mm -hmm. these are, this is so, by being so practical, right? We have 28 classes. We've got seven people. <laughs> 28 divided by seven is four. Go, you know. It, oh, I know. <laughs> it's, there's something very clarifying about that pragmatism, right? Was there a big time commitment over the summer for faculty that were involved in this project? There was a, definitely a time commitment. And what we were, you know, the person who got basically turn this from the kind of hairpins and, 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 and bubblegum idea that we were generating in, in May, um, in addition to Steve's team, who was doing the, you know, doing the, the lifting on the Blackboard site, was our visual resources curator, um, Catherine Fastano, who is um, a gifted pedagogue herself. Um, and she and a student intern spent all of July, basically putting together um, the videos that we had recorded. So the quality of the material on the site is really very professional looking. And I think that was a real boost to everybody to feel like they were participating in the class. That, like, it really looks good. It, you know, it, it runs smoothly. It, it's, a, it's a really nice product. So that, that was, I think that was a real um, boost for all of us. At the end of all of our labors, we could actually see, oh, there are these great you know, videos we're doing. And of course, there's a performative aspect of it, too. Our colleagues were watching our videos, so we were performing for them. What's been the reaction of the people who teach the, the course who aren't, were not involved in the creation of it? So how have they... Um, responded to having this material handed to them? 
that was one thing I felt very, very strongly about going into this. And in some ways, that was also um, an incentive for the full-time faculty in that we would be creating something, a course, that would lighten the lift for our very valued contingent faculty, many of whom have taught with us, you know, who've taught alongside of us for many years. Um, And some of actually one of whom was our, was our, was one of our students. She was an undergraduate with us. So I think that that was also, people had a real sense that um, this would help their labor would really help the contingent faculty as they, again, also navigated this semester. And, you know, so, so we've worked a lot with the contingent faculty, you know, we're all, we're all now faculty of this course, but I think everybody was really grateful (laughs) that they could just walk into this course in August and it was pretty much done for them. They can tweak it as they like. This big body of material had already been pulled together and curated. I think they were really, they were glad not to have to do that, you know, to design a whole course in the, in a matter of a week and then teach it under these conditions. One of the questions I have for you has to do with the shift from three continent-based mm-hmm, mm-hmm. versions of art history to a unified, more global version of art history. I'm wondering about that in the context of, of other conversations in the academy about um, anti-racist pedagogy, mm-hmm, about decolonizing mm-hmm. the syllabus, and how did that play into the way that you thought about the material you were gathering together for this class? So thinking about those as ultimate goals of the course um, was always part of our conversation. And we were able, because we have expertise now in the department on the Indigenous Americas with me, Asato brings a great wealth of of expertise on, on Asian art, particularly Japanese art. We just have a we have a, a new hire who's named Caitlin Beach, who, although she works she works in the 18th century on the Black Atlantic, and she um, developed a, a class for us on um, African diasporic art of the 16th and 17th century. That's something she 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 knows and she studied as well as doing as doing a course on the Black Atlantic for a class on the Black Atlantic. So we were able to um, leverage the expertise we already had in the room. We but we do we have identified that in fact there's a lot of stuff that we would really like to do. It's it's not integrated into the syllabus yet, but I think we're all really conscious of those those horizon markers for us. Um, and of course, these are really ongoing discussions. I mean, what does a decolonizing pedagogy look like? I mean, we still haven't figured that one out. So, but it's something I'm very conscious about. I write about, um, and you know, so that's 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 still that's very much a live discussion for me and my own scholarship. For me, it's it's really kind of fun to have these conversations with my colleagues and to get their perspectives on them. Um, but again, so what we in the at the end of the day, I mean, I think that we we all realized that we couldn't do everything with this syllabus. We I, we're all pretty realistic about like what we could do, right, right. Um, what what we could do well. So we really pulled on our own expertise, um, and then we left placeholders for 
for things that we'd really like to achieve. And one of those would be a much greater integration of a discussion about um, race and the way that race and um, has shaped art history. Um, mm-hmm. It's in there a little bit in the class, but it's not as strong as a through line as we'd really, I think, like it to be. So we're waiting for the next iteration, but we've got the spring semester for that. <laughs> so, that so that's really interesting. So you, you're, you and your colleagues are looking at this first go round as like a first draft in a way, and you'll continue to refine and revise it, do you think? I'm hoping so. This is a course I want to teach for years. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's really, I think it's a well-designed course. And it's modular. You know, when you have like 28, like little units, it, what you can move one out and put another one in. You can shift them around. So thinking about it, um, that modularity of it in some ways is an invitation to redo it without having to rethink the structure of the whole thing. So you're teaching it this semester, yes? So can you talk a little bit about what it's like to teach for Barbara Mundy to teach the Barbara Mundy day as opposed to a day when you may be teaching, you know, Caitlin's work or Asato's work? How does that how does that feel for you? I just am curious. Does it feel like, oh, you know, I really am on my game today because we're doing, you know, some of the art that I really know? It's it, in some ways it's actually the opposite. Because in my conversations with my colleagues, they're like, oh, that is so cool. I didn't know that. And I'm thinking, oh, man, if they don't know that, the students certainly (laughs) aren't going to. (laughs) So it helped me when I would say designing the class on the the Olmec, the great ancient civilization of the Americas, to think about how unfamiliar it would be to the students. I feel like I was really on my game when I was developing the videos for that class over the summer, that was really very, it was creative work for me. It was fun to think about how am I going to present this, you know, this object in in five minutes. So there was a real payoff for that during all that work during the summer. But it was really talking through the material and with an acknowledgement that my colleagues were going to have to teach this material that was unfamiliar to them that made me try to do a better job of taking stock of how unfamiliar this is. My wonderful colleague, Richard Teverson, who's a, who's a classicist, he did these, a video on the painter named Ezekius, Ezekius did, which is just, you know, it's standard fodder for the art history introduction. It's something you almost always teach. His video was so revelatory about that work of art. I was like, I, I've never, I've never really understood this thing until I watched his video. So there are these moments where you're like, oh my God, it's just great. And then of course, Asata is doing, you know, she did a video on the stupa, the great stupa. And I had never studied that before. And it was so eerily resonant about, in terms of the ways that sacred architecture works across the world. Um, so they're, they're really wonderful moments. You're like, oh, I can see all the pieces fitting together in a very new way. One of the things that the flipped model is allowing me to do is that it frees me up in the classroom so that, you know, I don't have to worry about telling them the date of the great stupa um, because they've prepared all of that before and they thought about it and they've usually taken some kind of quiz before they've gotten to class. 
So we can actually then start talking about like these big connections between, say, sacred architecture among the Olmec and sacred architecture among the in a Buddhist context in India. And I think that's really exciting to students because you want to emerge with some kind of framework from an education. Yes. Just a feeling like you 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 don't have all the pieces together, but you have some larger idea where to put the pieces once you once you you learn them or you master them. And you can realize that that framework's wrong or that you want to, you know, look at it from another way. But it really helps to start with a framework. So in the in the class, it's fun because we can just talk about, you know, the connections between all of this. And I I feel like the the immense preparation that my colleagues did in developing these classes and then developing, you know, assessments for every day's class really does free me up in the classroom. And I hope for the rest of them as well. Do you see this changing the way you think about your electives? Yes. I mean, I've already, um, on the w- in the wake of this class, I... I totally redesigned the upper level class I was teaching on Art of the Ancient Americas with the same model of the flipped classroom and where the Blackboard site has a has a folder for every day and there's videos and there's readings and there's a quiz for every single day that the students do before they actually get into class. So I use that model of a of like a highly designed course for my upper level. And I also instituted uh, um, labor-based grading in that class too, which is um, which again, where um, where the students are. You, know, you develop elaborate rubrics for the the work that students are doing, um, and I like that labor-based grading a lot um, because, in some ways, it's students can kind of choose their own path in terms of how well they want to do in the class. Um, so yes, it really had an impact on the way I designed my upper level class. Um, I will say though that that all of this is is just a lot. It's a lot of labor. It takes a lot of work to do to do these and to do them well. And everybody, you know, things that are worth doing are usually take some time to do them. So, but these do take have taken you know taken all of us a lot of time. What, what does art do for us in, in, in times like this? Like, why is it useful? What is, what does this, what we attempt to do with this course, and I think what I'm really enjoying doing in the class, is through works of art of the past, you can actually get some kind of understanding of how um, human beings of the past interacted with the world and the kind of sense they made of their world. When we look at literary texts, um, those are really the province of a very tiny um, strata of people who are literate. And historical texts, particularly the last you know, 500 years or maybe even a thousand years, is usually written by men. And so when you enter into the work of art from the past, you get to see really a more democratic view of history and that it's a view of um, the world, of representing the world that more people shared. Um, and it's also a really deep view of history because it, it, we can we have access to worldviews that predate texts. 
so if you're really interested in, in you know these deep structures of, of time and historical um, and, and and the history of human beings as creators on the earth, you have to turn to to the work of art. And the fundamental principle of the of art history is that you have some tools, and they're basically you know a kind of formalism that give you a starting point for any work of art. And that's what we're trying to get give our, our students in these classes is, is this, a way, a very a formalized way of looking at something that allows them access to the, you know, the, the world of human creation of the past and, and in the present moment. It's just one of the, the, the wonderful parts of my job to get to be part of a project like this and to, to just talk with someone like you about your work and your teaching and your discipline. You know, I think part of the project of our little podcast is to stay connected to that to that feeling mm -hmm, and that mm -hmm. kind of vision because we all are so kind of isolated in a way. And it that was, but you know, that was really one of the the um, one of the things I realized during when we were designing and creating this class over the summer was that people were hungry for the connection. I mean, we were all you know, cooped up in our apartments or homes. And it was nice to get onto on Zoom every two weeks and see how we were doing. And it also gave us a chance to, to share talking about what we, the things we really love, these works of art, our favorite works of art, with our colleagues. And you don't often get a chance to do that. So it was really nice to have a moment to kind of step back and think about, what you wanted to bring to the table and then have a chance to, to talk about it with other people. So that was, that was good. And I think people were really hungry for that connection. I mean, I was just amazed with the alacrity that people would be available for meetings, which That's normally great. isn't the case during the summer. Well, no, but in, you know, normally when you're having a meeting, it's about like, how do we redesign the form that's going to allow us to apply for tenure? And this is, you know, mm -hmm. how are we going to talk about a work of art that really matters to me? So you really found a way to create community in your department around the thing that drew you to the field. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a, you know, I have to say, I love designing courses. Sometimes I love designing them more than I love teaching them. But it's a very creative, it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's totally creative. And you don't, um, there's, there's a lot of blues in there where you can imagine you're like the perfect course, the perfect, the perfect encounter with this object. And you know, then, you, then you try to make it happen. So I think I've always found course development, course design, super a super creative activity. And, you know, it was nice to see what other people were coming up with, too, at the same moment that you were in the process of, you know, creating materials about your own area of specialty. So one of the things we always like to ask people is to talk about a teacher that's been important. And I'm wondering if you have a teacher in your past that you think about or someone that emerged to you maybe anew as you were doing this pretty intensive collaborative course design? Well, it would have to be my Miss Appleby, my my high school AP chem teacher, who a 
course it would have to be your AP chem teacher. That's, that's, the <laughs> exactly. that's what I am. Like, I think she taught me like regular chem too, but then she was also my AP chem teacher. Um, and for her, she was this kind of gaunt, white-haired, very tall woman, kind of, um, uh, she looked like an athletic 75-year-old, as I recall her. And she, for her, chemistry was always so exciting. And it was great to go into her classroom because she just exuded an, an enthusiasm about, about chemistry and its connection to the real world. Um, so she was always making those connections about, you know, the, the material that we were learning and how, how the phenomena that we would study then manifest in the real world. But it was mostly just her excitement about it, about the field. And I, that's always been very um, compelling to me to, to be into a classroom and, and have somebody there who is, is just super, super exciting. And, of course, Ms. Appleby had been doing it for probably 50 years by the time she taught me, but she still maintained that amazing enthusiasm. I'm wondering if you have a museum experience that, that had a real effect on you in terms of becoming an art historian. It's funny. I'm still encountering works of art that will just absolutely floor me. And one of the reasons I was so excited, for instance, to, to do my little section, my class on the old Mac, is that I had just been in the previous August to Mexico, um, and I went to visit a friend who lives, happens to live near one of the great museums of Olmec art. And I'd never seen a lot of these Olmec colossal heads before, but I was able to on that visit to Mexico. And they, I was absolutely stunned by them, totally floored. <laughs> and um, so that my, I, I still get excited and I still learn new things about these encounters with the, the work of art. Um, you know, it's funny when we think about designing a course, it's just there are three people, right? The disciplinary expert, the media specialist, right? And the technologist, those are basic, mm -hmm. basically the team. It, there's some part of it that has to do with not just the expertise, but like the, your, your passion and excitement around what it, what it is you're doing and finding ways that the technology can help you, you know, communicate that to the students right that that sort of the immediacy of it and the power of what you're you're trying to get across you keep using that word encounters which i think is really really interesting in terms of mm -hmm. thinking about a, an online course is like creating a series of encounters with the content with each other you know fascinating yeah and so the design of this course is you know we have these 25 28 classes but um we designed it so that there would be a synchronous component. So we all go either in the classroom with the students or we're on Zoom with the students. So it's really, it's, it's, it's nice um, because we really do get to have real encounters with students um, as part of that course. I'm actually seeing now that the course, I mean, I really thought about the course as being designed for the students. So they'd be, you know, interested in art history, but at the end of the day, I've come to realize that the course is also for the people who are now teaching it. It gives us a sense of kind of connection and shared purpose. We have undergraduates 
who are, as we call them, our undergraduate teaching assistants who come and help us sometimes with Zoom breakout sessions. Sometimes they run sections for the students to teach them skills. And the course is for them because now they're part of our community. So I never saw that very clearly when we were designing the course, how much, how important it would be to create connections between and among ourselves, um, in addition to what it was doing for the students. So it reversed my idea of the course because I thought about the course as really just being to get the students on board. And now I think, um, I mean, I'm hoping to get on board, but it's also been really instrumental for us as a, as a department, as a group, as a, as a, as a unity of, of, of pedagogues to be together through this semester. And we're all together because of our shared activity in teaching this course, because I couldn't imagine doing it alone. Thank you so much for your time. This was just awesome. Twice Over Podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, with new episodes appearing twice each week. For host and guest bios and show notes, please visit our website, twiceoverpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twiceover1 or email us at twiceoverpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.